Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mental Health TV. Um, I'm, my name is Nikki Lambert. Um, I'm here again with my lovely colleague, Vanessa. Hello, everybody. Vanessa Garrity. Um, looking forward to um, joining the conversation tonight. Um, I'm actually on holiday in the Lake District, so my Wi-Fi is a bit patchy, but hoping to stay with the conversation. Um, I'll be doing the social media tonight, so if you're following on Twitter, it's MHTV hashtag, and we'll feed any comments, questions into the conversation. If you're on Facebook, if you like the Unite MHNA page, you can follow the live stream that way as well. Thank you. Brilliant. And we're joined tonight to talk about all things substance use and life in general by Ian. Ian, do you want to introduce yourself to the... Yeah, thanks for that, Nikki and Vanessa. Um, so I'm Ian Hamilton. I work at the University of York um, and I'm a registered mental health nurse, um, but haven't been in practice for some time now. So I started my career and most of my career was spent working with people who uh, were homeless and had co-occurring mental health and drug and alcohol issues. Um, and I've kind of carried on that theme or that interest in the academic work that I do. So um, it's been really great. You know, it's a wonderful thing about nursing is you can have more than one career, can't you? Um, so yeah, I feel really lucky. And we're going to do something a bit different. Normally we will have a chat and then we'll come to questions. But tonight we're going to do something slightly different. We're going to start off with a question. So this has come from uh, Helen Kehoe, who's a CAMS background. So whilst nursing within CAMS, tier four settings, it was always beneficial to have safe, open educational conversations on substance use and mental health. Do you think it would be beneficial to have more conversations like this within schools? So this is a question about schools and, um, yeah, starting to have more open conversations. What do you think, Ian? Well, it's, it's, it, thanks for the question, Helen. And I guess it also um, applies to parents thinking about, you know, talking to their children. Um, and it, it's quite interesting, the evidence um, around um, school-based interventions on drug use. I think we, we probably, even if we've not experienced it, we'll be familiar with the type of scenario where maybe the police um, are, are pulled in to talk to you know, um, teenagers in a school or, you know, someone who's in recovery uh, comes in and, you know, talks about their, their life. And I, th I think both methods, although they're interesting and almost intuitively you would think um, are worth doing, the, the evidence points the other way. And the evidence um, suggests that actually those children, it, it makes no difference and worse still, the, the children who didn't really think about using drugs, it then raises their curiosity. Mm. Um, so it's counterproductive. Um, I think the, the main message in brief around uh, school education is to make it age specific. So you can't deliver the same um, type of intervention to a, for a 12 year old as you would a 17 year old. Um, mm. and, and again, very, broadly you would be able to maybe make it a bit more specific to drugs the the older the child gets um but i'm no expert on this i just listen to what others say and and mm. the others um you know people like ian mcdonald's uh, that some people may know on here um would say that actually for a 12 and 13 year old you don't even need to mention drugs or alcohol you just talk about you know things like peer pressure um mm. 
how to say no effectively. Mm. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that helps, Helen, but um, that's that would be my thinking. I don't know what you guys think, Nikki and Vanessa. I think we don't do enough about building. I don't think resilience is a tricky old topic, isn't it? But I think there's something about exactly as you say about raising confident kids. Hmm. So a child who knows who they are, what they want, how to say yes and no, and how to have friends around them and create a, a peer group that's supportive because that's what's so, so needed. And I think there is something about being isolated, being lonely, being perhaps yeah. a bit more vulnerable that actually puts children in the way of harm of all different kinds of harm. And this is one of them. What about you, Vanessa? Yeah, I would. It looks like you're going to have to put that in the chat box. We'll repeat it in a minute. But yeah, absolutely. So something to be said about um, supporting um, children. We also wanted to talk about three or four, we can circle back to topics, but we wanted to bring in quite a few different aspects. And one of the things I wanted to sort of, um, ask you about is um, what's been the impact of COVID on, on, the use, on people's use of drug and alcohol? Do we have any data on that yet? There's little bits coming out. Um, there's probably a bit more on alcohol than there is on... Um, drugs, which, you know, that, that's a useful reminder, isn't it? That when you have um, a product that's illicit, um, it's really difficult to measure what's going on for obvious reasons. Mm. Um, so with alcohol, just very quickly, it looks as though what's happened is those people that were drinking very moderately prior to COVID or abstinent have more or less continued that. Um, so those at lower low risk have continued to be at lower risk during COVID, um, and they make up the majority of of people. There is a significant proportion of people who were drinking at hazardous levels prior to COVID, and they've actually um, increased the amount they're drinking, as far as we can tell. Um, mm -hmm. So there seems to be two very distinct groups. With regards to drugs, it depends which drug you know, we're looking at. And um, so I think the easiest way I can summarise it is there's been very little disruption to the market um, in terms of pricing, availability, supply, as far as we can tell. Um, I think the only thing that might have happened, but uh, we'll have to wait and see, is the, the, it makes sense in a way that people would use less MDMA and other stimulants um, and perhaps be more inclined to use depressants. So um, by that, I mean drugs like benzodiazepines, mm -hmm. um, alcohol again, and um, even cannabis. So, but that's, uh, you know, the information on that is a bit patchy at the moment. So it's more just mm -hmm. a, a kind of guess really. Um, but the data will become available and it'll be interesting to see uh, mm. what it reveals. Mm. Well, we, I think it's always interesting because it was kind of like British or English culture around drinking anyway. Because the first mm. thing that, that happened with all the kind of the COVID memes and things like that, which they're not an accurate portrayal of what's going on in society, but they do show us what we think is funny or what we think is relevant. It's the amount of alcohol-based jokes, commentary, it was straight through the roof, wasn't it? So part of that is anxiety, yeah. part of that is not having to go to work uh, and all these different sort of coping mechanisms. And, and it's always seen as so acceptable. Yeah. Not not to have a drink, but to be drunk, drunk. No. It's, it's really interesting well, was, the way we approach it. It was quite telling. I, I did a piece for The Independent um, around alcohol and uh, what was going on. 
and a very small line in there um, attracted quite a lot of attention. And that was, uh, I can't remember how it's phrased, but basically suggesting um, it might be an opportunity to try a, a dry COVID. Um, and that really stirred a hornet's nest. Um, so, you know, um, everybody piled in on that and said, you know, if it wasn't for alcohol, I wouldn't be able to cope. Um, so it's quite telling, really. Um, and I hope it, I didn't, I don't think I phrased it in a way that was meant to be, um, you know, argumentative or accuse, mm. you know, accusing people in any way. It was just, a, as I say, a suggestion. Um, but there's clearly some sensitivity around that. Um, so yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, I think when you when you use your voice like that, you never know what part of it is going to resonate with people and mm. what they're going to respond to. But yeah. interestingly, it just shows it shows that exactly as you say, a sensitivity around that issue. Um, Vanessa yeah. did just um, post a question. We have a chat box going on as well, saying, yeah. um, and it kind of circles us back to the nursing curriculum. So why is substance misuse uh, not taught particularly effectively in the nursing curriculum? So obviously different unis approach this differently, but um, so it's a valid point, isn't it, that we don't always do a brilliant job of it. It seems to be less important yet drug, drug and alcohol uh, use on the input increase. And that's a Facebook question that's coming from one of our colleagues. So have you have any thoughts about how we approach drug and alcohol in the nursing curriculums? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it's no surprise. I think it's essential, really, because um, there's there's no aspect of nursing care that isn't impacted by drug and alcohol use at some point or another. So whether you're an adult nurse, um, a child nurse or a mental health nurse, it doesn't really belong to one area, um, mm. you know, and, and the, the full spectrum of drug and alcohol use is is going to, um, you know, impact on your um, nursing career. So people who, uh, as I mentioned a minute or two ago, are, are low risk in terms of their alcohol consumption, right through to people that are, you know, extremely chaotic, mm. um, dependent and, um, you know, really suffering as it were. Um, so, yeah, I'd see it as essential. I, th I think, to be honest, it's the same problem with medicine. It's um, really patchy. Um, and clearly what happens, I think, within um, higher education nursing teams is that you are unlikely to promote, deliver, facilitate um, these type of sessions if it's not something you feel comfortable with. Or even for some, I think, who perhaps bring a moral view to this privately or publicly, mm -hmm. um, which I understand. Uh, I don't agree with, but I do understand it. Um, and my concern is, I think sometimes what happens is it's a bit like um, awareness around ethnicity and culture is that what, what people the, the slight danger with training is that what you can end up with is people learning the right language to use and their underlying beliefs haven't changed. So you have nurses who, you know, say all the right stuff, uh, but actually underneath all that, their beliefs uh, are, um, you know, the opposite. So they, they still hold those stigmatizing views, but know that they can't express those um, at work. Mm. Well, I think as well, we, we ignore the fact of how many people in, in practice, how many people who are qualified staff actually have stresses and al around alcohol themselves, yeah. particularly alcohol and drug use. But I can remember when I was a baby nurse back in the day, with people saying so-and-so has come in with a cold, they need to go home. 
and it's, and there was no there was no referral to H, uh, to to occupational health there was no support there was no even no really open acknowledgement that that person had an addiction issue and i think you know i'm glad those days are gone i hope they are but i do think there's something to be said about the fact we don't always acknowledge our own issues in nursing as well as we might do did yeah. you want to add anything vanessa yeah, um, just like it's a bit like um, every otherism, so, you know, racism mm. um, and, um, you know, mental health stigma where mm. people um, say that they don't have non-judgmental views, but then um, practice indicates otherwise. So for me, what, what it makes me think about is working in the prisons and mm. trying to get vulnerable women um, referred on to housing or for mental health support once they come out of prison. And, you know, the amount of sort of judgmental um, sort of documentation that I've read as a reason to exclude women from support after prison, you know, is really quite surprising. And it has been written by qualified nurses um, and, you know, usually dressed up as sort of a risk issue when really it's, you know, a lack of understanding, a lack of understanding about vulnerability as well that's led to drug and alcohol use and, you know, trauma. So I would say, you know, like I say, quite similar in the way that we talk about um, within the profession that we we don't stigmatise mental health or that our systems aren't racist. But yeah, our systems are often set up in a way where we exclude people on the basis of drug and alcohol use. So I just really wanted to make that point. I think on the upside, the, the really wonderful thing I've witnessed is um, when particularly adult students go on a placement, um, it can be really transformative, you know, if they're exposed, it's, again, it's nothing revealing, is it? We, we know that contact with people, whether they have an addiction issue, a mental health issue, or whatever it is, um, is, is probably one of the most powerful things that uh, can happen in terms of um, people changing them, their view and their mind and their attitude. Um, but of course, there aren't enough placements uh, to get every student through. Um, so it's, you know, it's, again, that's not going to solve things. Um, but as I say, it's a real, it's one of the best things I've seen happen in my academic career and um, really encouraging um, to see that change in, in the way people view this client group. What do you think I, it is about the nature of sort of substance, substance use that makes people feel that they, they can be judgmental about it? Um, that's an interesting question. I don't really know where it comes from. Well, you you suggested, you know, that there could be some personal issues. So if people have first-hand experience, you know, themselves or a family member or a friend, um, but it's just fear of the unknown, isn't it? I think, you know, it's um, it, it just, it's that othering, isn't it? You know, it's not something I recognise. It's not something I would do. Um and of course, that leads on to another issue, which is one that we all got to battle against: is this idea that people have choice. Um, so I, I chose not to use drugs. Why can't you choose not to use drugs? Um, and of course, the the choice it, people do have a choice, but their um, the decisions around whether to use drugs or not is quite often um, a choice that's made for people. It's a way of surviving a way of coping, um, trauma, um, or even just a, well, not just, but, you know, having um, symptoms. Um, you know, none of us can really tune into what that must be like. Um, 
you know, particularly, um, you know, if you're feeling depressed, anxious, psychotic, whatever, whatever, you know, there's a, there's a drug for all, all conditions, really. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they don't ask awkward questions. There's no waiting times. They don't demand an appointment. Um, they're not intrusive and they're available at the drop of a hat. Mm. And it's so that's what we're competing with when we... Yeah. I think yeah. you're absolutely right. And also, there's something you, you have you have a cachet, you have a uh, kudos, you have a group if you're yeah. using alcohol and drugs, whereas if you're using psychiatric medication, that's less often the case. You know, yeah. so and also, you know, a lot of the medications that we have to offer aren't ideal for people. You know, no. they're not with they're not problem free themselves. So there's yeah. a lot of complexity around that. Yeah. Um, one of the questions that seems to be coming through is: Has there been an increase in alcohol and drug related death? I guess that means over over the last year, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Do we have that information yet? No, it's due out fairly soon, um, unless it gets pushed back. The, so it's the Office for National Statistics who produce a, an annual report. And of course, they've not been looking for work to do over the last few months. So mm-hmm. it's possible this might just be pushed out a little, but it will become available. But um, the, the last, so this time last year, we had the annual report. And again, depressingly, it showed that a new record had been set for uh, drug-related deaths. And um, the numbers involved have overtaken road traffic accidents. So the the parallels there are quite interesting. You think about the investment there's been in reducing road traffic accidents in terms of car design, in terms of um, education, uh, seatbelts. So reducing the risk. Um, and clearly that's what we need to be doing with drugs and alcohol is we'll never eliminate drug and alcohol use. Um, and it's important to say, actually, for most people, drug and alcohol use is a really pleasurable thing. We, we're, we're all a bit weird in the group that we belong to because we, we never see anyone that's doing great, do we? We only see people that have problems. Mm-hmm. And that distorts your, your view, I think, of well, it distorts my view, although in it, and I need to remind myself that people with problems due to drugs and alcohol are in the minority and not the majority. Um, but nonetheless, whether you use once or a hundred times, making sure it's as risk-free as possible, um, I think should be a priority within nursing. So just to clarify for, for people watching, what is it that people are dying of when we're saying drug-related deaths? Yeah, good point. Yeah. So it, in the main, it tends to be opiates, uh, so heroin, um that said, few people will die of a single drug. Um, they tend to be combinations of drugs. Uh, so typically heroin and diazepam um, or heroin, diazepam and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just sort of interjecting on gender there, we know far more about, um, or, or rather, men are more likely to die um, due to drugs, according to the data. But then what's emerged fairly recently is that may be a distorted reporting because coroners are less likely to investigate um, a suspicious female death, particularly when drugs might um, be indicated. So I suspect we've under-recorded the number of female deaths, and that kind of matters. Mm-hmm. Um you know, if, if we we know, don't we, because over the last 10, 20 years, if you don't have data, you can't make the argument for services and 
um, to provide support. So it's really critical we have that data. <clears throat> so what's the picture like at the moment then for services at the moment? Because from, from whenever I've seen it, it's not been going great. You know, our policy seems to be lagging behind. Um, services seem to be being outsourced quite a lot. Is, am I getting the correct picture from that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we at one point, um, going back to the 1990s, the early noughties, uh, you know, the UK led the world in terms of the type of uh, drug treatment and support we offered. Since then, you know, just uh, I don't want to bang on about it because it is quite depressing with you, but um, one of the telling things that has happened is we've wiped out and made extinct addiction psychiatry. Um, you know, they're an endangered species. Now, that wouldn't happen in oncology or um, cardiac care. You wouldn't get rid of all the medics and, and uh, consultants with all their expertise. Um, you know, th this needs to be a multidisciplinary effort. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, the reason that addiction psychiatry has been decimated is because it's been a race to the bottom in terms of commissioning and they're just mm -hmm. too expensive. Um, I mean, nurses are fairly expensive when it, um, even though they may not feel they are. Um, but you know, when you, your budget keeps shrinking year on year, um, there's only so much you can do. So I'm not blaming any of the drug treatment providers, but I'm definitely blaming the government. And again, um, I think this is something to do with the wider population. You know, the government wouldn't get away with this if it was unpopular. Um, so again, this brings us back to choice, doesn't it? So most members of the public would um, just view this as people making a choice to use drugs. Therefore, it's up to them to sort it out. Mm. Okay. Um, and so is that reflected in policy as well? Do we have up-to-date policy? Yeah. Um, you know, so the mantra we're all getting used to is um, from Boris Johnson and colleagues is we're following the science um, on COVID, uh, but they're certainly not following the evidence and the science when it comes to drugs and alcohol. Um, I mean, alcohol, very telling, isn't it? You know, not once in those briefings was alcohol mentioned and the fact that it um, increases the risk of dying um, if you contract COVID. Um and, you know, off-licences at the beginning of this uh, pandemic were put into the same category as pharmacies and deemed essential. Um, so that, to me, is quite telling, really, um, of, of where, not just this government, um, mm. I'm not Tory bashing, you know, I think mm. um, governments of all colours have been, or had a very cosy relationship with the industry, and the industry's worked hard to achieve that. Mm. Definitely. Definitely. So thinking as well, I mean, you did you did make some waves recently with um, an, a letter talking about uh, morphine, talking about pain management, sort of being a little bit more political. Can you tell us a bit about that, what that campaign was for? And yeah, this was in May. It became apparent that, um, not secretly, but um, behind the scenes, um, the, the government was aware that there were some problems with um, the supply and distribution of uh, morphine. Uh, not for people with drug dependency, just um, every other type of patient, as it were. And um, of course, if you do contract COVID, what we know is, um, you know, it can be painful. Um, but probably one of the, the biggest risks is obviously to your respiratory system. Um, and uh, what morphine does is that helps just relax you and get you into a more steady uh, breathing pattern. Mm -hmm. um, 
any delay in administering morphine um, obviously increases the risk of um, getting more uncomfortable, but also of um, a cardiac event, so having a, a heart attack or a stroke. So it's really quite critical. Um, so myself and I think about 50 or 60 um, other colleagues from around the country wrote to the Home Secretary um, asking her to loosen the regulations around morphine. Um, it's extremely tightly regulated, some would say quite rightly so, but it was and still is, I think, um, inhibiting um, and preventing people getting treatment in a timely way. Um, and no great surprise, the, the government makes the right noises on this, but there's been no change. Mm. And it's interesting to me, because um, even during our short conversation, you've talked about writing, speaking out, speaking out. Is there some advice or some, some thoughts you have on maybe nurse voice, how we use our voices, how we use our professional knowledge? Yeah, we're pretty timid as a group, aren't we? You know, um, if, again, I've got to draw parallels with our medical colleagues who, you know, are well-organised, vocal um, and effective in lobbying their own interests. And I'd love nursing to be in that position. Um, you know, healthcare is political, um, mm. undoubtedly, um, in terms of who gets what and why. Um, and I, I think most nurses are aware of that, but it's just this, having this collective uh, way of organising ourselves and, and, you know, being agitators, being advocates um, is, is not something we have a great deal of experience with, um, unlike medics who, you know, that, that um, knowledge, that skill is passed from generation to generation. Um, and it's not seen as something exceptional or, um, you know, people rocking the boat or whatever. Um, you, you can provide good nursing care and be politically active. The two aren't, ex you know, um, they don't compromise each other in any way. They complement each other. So how did you get started? How did you go down that route a bit more? Me, Nikki? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess you just, you quickly figure out, don't you, that while you might be able to influence um your peers around you, if, if you start engaging with the media, um, you're able to potentially influence a wider group. Um, so that was my thinking, really. Um, and a desperate need to become famous. <laughs> Job done. Job done. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> go on. Vanessa, did you want to, to come in on that? Because I know your signal's been a bit wibbly. Yeah, um, hopefully my signal's um, holding okay, so I apologise that I haven't been as vocal tonight. But no, just um, what Ian's saying resonates with me, that I think as nurses we have to be political. And people think of politics in terms of party politics, don't they? And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, mental health nursing is linked to social inequality and we have a responsibility to, to advocate for people and demand better mm -hmm services and better care for people who are vulnerable and don't have a voice and I always see you know mental health nursing as being quite privileged um, in the sense that we have a voice and we can speak to speak for the other people so we should speak for them and I know um, myself and um, my colleague Andre Mental Health covered um, one of Ian's events the other year which was on women and drugs and for me, um, it really opened my eyes, actually, to some of the sort of gendered um, issues around around drug use, particularly um, in terms of um, the way services are designed around men. And then 
I think after that, going to work in prisons, um, you know, seeing the reality that there aren't very many, for example, um, family units where women can remain with the babies, which mean that a lot of the time, um, you know, there's forced separation within families. Um, whereas if we provided um, if we provided family-centred services for women who might have addictions issues, usually related to vulnerability, trauma, mental illness, then, um, you know, the recovery rates, the, you know, being able to keep families together, mm-hmm. much more positive outcomes. So for me, you know, I haven't been able to stay quiet when I've seen these injustices. And I think as a profession, um, you know, we shouldn't be staying quiet. So I absolutely you know, agree with you. And I think whether we use the media, social media, or whatever we have kind of within our gift to use, we should be speaking out about these things. Yeah. Do you think there's a fear in nursing about saying something that makes people not like us or doing something that's unprofessional? It could be, couldn't it? um, I I think, I don't know, it'd be interesting to hear what people, uh, other people's views are really. Um, I, I do wonder, like I was saying before, if it's just not seen as compatible, you know, being an agitator politically, um, having a view, you know, we're not meant to have views, are we? We're meant to be um, non-judgmental, head down, get on with it, graft. Um, you know, it's, it's, I mean, striking is an obvious example, isn't it? You know, it's very, very rare that we withdraw labour. Um, so I think there's there's some... Um, intelligence to be gathered there, isn't there? What's that all about? Um, yeah. yeah, we've got a couple more questions coming in. Did you want to ask them, Vanessa? Yeah, I, um, yeah we've got some questions coming in. My signal's quite um, hit and miss, so I apologise if there's a delay in terms of us asking these questions. We've got a few here on Facebook. Um, one is which I feel we have talked about, but if you want to add anything else, and that's about how can services be made more inclusive for people who are seeking substance use disorder help? And then um, it says, in my experience, the postcode lottery and homelessness are barriers to access and help. So any comments around inclusive services and about homelessness and postcode lottery? Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. So, yeah, what I would say with regard to being uh, responsive and inclusive is if you look at what's happened to mental health over the last two decades, we've seen a transformation in the way that uh, mental health is delivered. Um, So when I started training, um, you know, it was very much an appointment-based system. Um, So you would come along and see your CPN or, you know, come to an outpatient um, clinic um, and now, you know, what's what's changed all that is assertive outreach. We, you know, we hunt you down in the community. Um, we don't wait for you to turn up. Um, now, that's very different to what's going on uh, in most, not all, but in most uh, drug treatment services. They, they are back in the um, mind frame and um, delivery of an appointment space system and underpinning that there's a little bit of um you know when you're ready you come and see us um rather than intervening early Mm -hmm. so i I find that really interesting given that there's many people who have both issues a mental health issue and a drug and alcohol issue and their the the approach of at best 
um, if they are getting a service from from drug treatment and mental health, um, it must be a little bit perplexing to see those very different attitudes um, and approaches. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost like using it as a way of screening out helping people. So you mm. come to us when you're ready. Well, we wouldn't yeah. say that with any other, um, say, pre-diabetes or something like that. We'd be uh-huh. having triggers and encouraging people to come forward for support and and saying, if you have an issue, come to us. I've just been looking on Facebook as well, and there's people having a, a rare old conversation without us. Good for you, uh, Lynn and Adrian, <laughs> saying um, wiping out of addictions nurses and then someone urging that person to move to Scotland, where apparently they have lots of addictions nurses, and saying oh, about right. the type of rehab that it used to exist that doesn't exist anymore. Um, have yeah. you any thoughts about um, harm minimization? About where we need to go with it? Is that the option? What should we be doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we've we've again. This is where politics, um, you know, has influenced what's going on in terms of drug treatment. So, in 2010, when David Cameron was prime minister, there was a clear move from um, harm reduction to abstinence, um, and that was signalled um, and encouraged through commissioning of services. Um, so the thinking was that, you know, we'd up to 2010, we'd been um, not sufficiently focused on abstinence um, and we're too focused on uh, reducing harm. And of course, you need both. You know, it's, it's not one or the other. Um, but that was a political decision. It wasn't based on evidence. It was just... It's a mo- you know, I think it's moral as well. It's a moral yeah. choice rather than an evidence-based choice. It's the whole kind of just say no kind of... Yeah. Just oh, yeah, following the but, science. <laughs> well, that's it, isn't it? You know, it's um, it's unfortunate that um, the evidence is being um, ignored. It's, it's not a case of just being cherry picked. It's just being ignored. Mm-hmm. So we're all familiar with Sage, um, you know, the body that advises the government on uh, COVID, and the, there's a group called the ACMD, the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. And, and they have a statutory duty to advise the government on all issues related to drugs. Um, so around harm minimization, they definitely support that and have advised the government. Um, but they've also advised quite rightly that we should be giving optimal doses of things like methadone, um, a substitute drug that's used uh, for people that are opiate dependent. So there's very simple, low-cost things that we could be doing now that would make a significant difference to people's ability to stabilise um, and, and possibly recover. What do you think would make the most difference? I, I think that. I think optimising the treatments we're already using, so making sure that we um, you know, give sufficient doses um, of drugs like methadone. You know, it's, it's that simple. Mm. I've got a, a bit of a mysterious direct message come through here. It says, and I assume it means in a professional capacity, Ian, what does Ian think about meth? Hashtag breaking bad. <laughs> so I guess it's that meth, not the other meth. <laughs> oh, methamphetamine, is that what it is? I think so. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's um, up to now, it's something that's been really problematic in Asia. We haven't really seen a lot of it in Europe, apart from in countries, um, old Eastern Bloc countries, Latvia and so on. But there does seem to have been a change recently, um, and I'm not sure how it's going to play out, but um, Mexican um, cartels have been uh, 
collaborating with mainly um, Dutch MDMA labs. Um, so there's been some sharing of intelligence um, mm. around how to produce methamphetamine. Um, now, it might be that's just so they can continue supplying the Asian market, but I would re be really surprised if there wasn't some kind of um, increase in supply to the UK and across Europe. Um, but we'll have to wait and see. Um, it's been updated. Crystal meth is what they've Crystal meth, said. yeah, 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 yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's a drug that um, it's difficult to see an upside to, to be honest. Um, I wouldn't say that about most drugs, but um, I, I think the, the damage that it can create um, is pretty horrific, really, and particularly to mental health as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think where I've seen it most is in is in the LGBTQ plus community, yeah. and it has been decimating yeah. in, the, in the experience I've had of it. So it is yeah. something I think that nurses need to keep up to date with. Yeah. And it's always difficult, I think, for me as, as a nurse, one of the things I've always found really difficult is when you have sort of like, you, you, you want to talk, but you don't want to use um, young people language at people because it's just mm. so cringeworthy and so terrible. But, <laughs> but there is this sort of idea about street language, about understanding kind of common parlance for drugs. And I think that's one of the things that maybe puts people off. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And also we're quite shy about sex, aren't we? And um, sex and drugs go really well together. Um, it can be one of the main motivations, not just for um, um, the LGBT community, but um, for straight people as well. You know, it's it's um, we it's not an area that's been well researched, um, mm. and yet could yield so much information mm. and really help us um, to help others. Um, yeah. yeah. So mixed up in terms of subculture, in terms of payment in terms of pleasure in terms of lots of different ways of thinking about it and not necessarily all negative but until no. we understand that mechanism better we can't really help so well no we're far too skewed in academia and in practice on the um risks um and the problems associated with drug use you know you 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 need to understand um or we collectively need to understand why people are using drugs? What what it is? What are the benefits? Um, what what do they perceive to be the gains, even if they're not actual benefits? Um, and once you've understood that, and you have a, an insight into that, it then helps us uh, with things like dependency and um, other drug related harms or problems. That's interesting as well because we, we we're all up in um, so young kids' faces for smoking cannabis, when we have like swathes of middle class people on coke we never seem to say mm. anything to them about their behavior not being terribly helpful for the rest of the community so that's an interesting yeah, one isn't sure. it no such for thing sure. as fair trade cocaine mm -hmm. <laughs> no point drinking your herbal tea shopping yeah. at oxfam and taking coke <laughs> but again that that was a, a clear political move wasn't it by um i can't remember if it's pretty patel or Sajid javed at the time but the home secretary um basically accusing uh, the middle class um, of um, contributing to the rise in knife crime um, mm. and violence. And, of course, there is very little connection between the two. What, what the Home Secretary got muddled up about was county lines and cocaine dealing. Now, county yeah. lines isn't about dealing cocaine. It's, it's about heroin and crack cocaine. Mm. Um, Can you just explain and, county lines for anyone who hasn't come across yeah, that before? So this phenomenon of... Um, running, having young adolescents, young teenagers 
who um, you know pick up drugs in urban areas and cities like Birmingham, um, and then use had been using anyway the rail network to get out into more provincial areas, rural areas, um, and I guess just expand the market. Um, mm-hmm. So that was deemed um, or tagged as county lines, still going mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Um, Nurses need to be aware of it because it's a safeguarding issue, yeah. particularly because of the transportation of young people away from home, and they're often children who have been care leavers or vulnerable in other ways. Yeah. The other the other thing that raises it as a safeguarding issue is that they can be cuckooed. So in, if you've got someone who's an old radio or someone who's vulnerable, maybe with learning disabilities, sometimes a gang will set up a group of kids nesting in that person's house. Um, and as well, again, as you were saying, alongside that, you see people are not being fed, people are sometimes being sexually or otherwise exploited, as well as being forced into sort of criminal behaviour and activities. Because, I mean, if you want to sell drugs to children, you really need children to do that. You can't have some dodgy-looking bloke standing outside of school without everyone calling the police now. So <laughs> the times have changed and selling's changed. Maybe this kind of shows where the problem lies, mm. is that we... we we should really be moving drug use and problems associated with it uh, to health. Um, mm. It should be removed. The responsibility for policy lies with um, the Department of Health and Social Care, mm. in my view, um, mm. not the Home Office. Um, mm. So, you know, that's something that could be easily done by Boris Johnson. He, he's not risk-averse, is he? So, um, I, you he know, could, he's got he makes a, a fair number of random choices. This could be another one. <laughs> yeah, good. And it, it's a, a simple one. I, I'm not sure it would be politically risky. I, I can't see him losing, um, you know, voters on this. Um, it's a kind of administrative thing. So I'm not even sure most people would be interested. But it would make a significant difference to ourselves as nurses. Um, and more importantly, to clients, to patients. Mm. And it has that gender aspect again to it, doesn't it? Because if you accept that a young girl can be forced into sex work, then why not yeah. appreciate that a young man could be forced into drug work? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, 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 um, I've seen something here from um, Alfonso, and I think he's circling back to something that we were talking about before, about when it might maybe why um, nurses sometimes struggle to speak up. And he's saying, I, I think it could be more about fear of losing registration or fear of not fitting uh, in with organisational values. So that's a really valid point. Thank you is. for that. Yeah. Is, we, we've whizzed through, <laughs> covered some ground again tonight, and we're sort of coming towards the end. Um, I wondered if, um, if we could just pop round and see if there's anything that um, people want to finish up with, maybe something that's going on that's positive or any further questions. So, Vanessa, do you have anything that you wanted yeah, to raise? There's no further questions, but one thing that I think we haven't really touched on much and we haven't got time, so maybe it's a future session, is about, we touched about on recreational drug use, but I think the sense that, you know, there's a study I know in Newcastle that's partly Newcastle, partly European, I think, as well, um, and that really opened my eyes around recreational drug use in terms of, for example, people using amphetamines to get through the cleaning, um, you know, ADHD, um, mm-hmm. self-medicating. Um, obviously, we haven't talked much about non-prescription drug use as mm-hmm. well, which is clearly, you know, a massive issue. So we talk a lot about, you know, the obvious heroin, amphetamines, etc. Mm-hmm. We know there's a massive underlying problem with people either using um, prescription drugs and um, without prescription or um, using drugs recreationally just to get through the day. So I guess any thoughts from Ian 
really about what's current and maybe it's something that we need to come back to as well. For another I, I think it would be really good to come back to that if people would tolerate us again. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the it, it's a really exciting time um, to be involved in this area. Um, perverse as that may sound, I don't mean it that way. I just mean in terms of our understanding, our knowledge, and also the the uh, market disruption that's taking place. Um, you know, that's that's been a, the, one of the biggest changes I've witnessed in in my career. You know, when I started, there wasn't the internet, um, mm. and you know, this idea of um, drugs, prescription drugs in the UK being difficult to source, that's no longer the case. You know, you can. Um, Providing you do a bit of planning, it's not a spontaneous thing. You know, you'd have to order them online and then wait for them to be delivered. But most people are able to do that, um, and that's been a real game changer, I think. So yeah, definitely up for um, looking at that and and hearing others' views on what they've experienced in their practice. Yeah, we're just getting a ton more questions in now. Now I've yeah. said we're stopping. <laughs> So um, some people want to ask about fentanyl and the use of nitrous oxide. So um, what, the, what, what, what what's your view on it? What are the harmful effects? That's fentanyl and nitrous oxide. Yeah, well, they're, they're two great examples. They're at either end of the spectrum. So nitrous oxide or laughing gas, as most people know, it, is a pretty safe drug. Um, probably one of the safest drugs. Um, the main risk with laughing gas is... Uh, the way that it's inhaled. So sometimes people will, um, you know, use a bag to inhale it, and obviously that cuts your oxygen supply. So uh, people can suffocate. That's the, it's not the chemical; it's the way it's taken. Uh, fentanyl, just very quickly, a huge problem in America. Not um, there's been myself included. Um, people trying to prophesy that it will be a problem in the UK. Mm. It's just not happened yet. Um, mm. I don't know if that answers the question, but again, that's maybe something we could come back to when we look at um, non-medical use of prescription drugs. Yeah, yeah. We've got a really interesting um, question here asking about why the UK, and I think you're supposed to be answering on behalf of the UK there, Ian, no pressure. Why mm. does the UK have a fear of opening safe injection houses? Yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? Some of the fear, I think, is around, um, you know, if you open up a a safer injecting facility, it condones and encourages use. Again, there's parallels with mental health. When we remember the uh, move from hospital to community care, a lot of concerns then about, um, you know, people living next door to someone who has psychosis um, or bipolar. Um, And the way around that, we found, was, is engaging with the local community um, and having some contact. So I think the same is probably true of this issue as well. Mm. So I think we are going to try and finish now. <laughs> this time we mean it. Um, is there anything that, I don't say if you had last words, Ian, but that sounds a bit grim. So have you anything that would be really helpful for people to sort of take away and think on? I, I think I, I just kind of um, repeat what I was saying a few minutes ago. I think this is a really exciting time to be involved in uh, in drug and alcohol treatment. And even if it's not something you feel you've got direct experience of, fortunately, most of the interventions are really simple, um, but can be really effective. So this isn't a complicated area um, to get involved in. It's it's an area um, that you can pick up some skills pretty quickly. 
Um, and just very briefly, those skills are nothing fancier than the good old-fashioned communication skills. Uh, listening is key, um, summarizing, reflecting, paraphrasing, just being interested. That would be my bottom line. Um, so, yeah, I'll leave it there, really. Vanessa, is there anything you want to add? Um, no, I just really love, as always, when I have a conversation with Ian, yeah, I think I'd, I'd yeah. second that. Yeah, absolutely, and particularly as you might well be our if you're gonna if you're kind enough to come back, you might well be our first eighteen plus episode if you're going to talk about sex and drugs. Yeah. <laughs> that could be that could be great. I think perhaps yeah. we should finish on that note. So yeah. thank you very much for everybody um, and for the, the interest you've shown and for the questions you've asked. If this is an area you'd like to for us to talk about more, that's no problem. We can certainly do that. Let us know. So thank you very much, everybody. Good night. Bye. Bye.